This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. Lectures upon the Principal Prophecies of the Revelation by Alexander MacLeod, Doctor of Divinity, 1814, tape number 4, as read by Samantha Ellosice. Fourth, the power with which this new foe is invested appears to be placed under restrictions. The depredations of the locusts are limited to that class of people who have not the seal of God on their foreheads. They are confined to those nations and people who either opposed the Christian religion or made a profession of it without receiving its truths or experiencing its living power. True Christians are to have remarkable protection. Fifth, the time in which these locusts prevail, like the natural locusts which expire with the summer that gave them origin, is said to be five months. Sir Isaac Newton, on account of the repetition of five months, verses 5 and 10, thinks it proper to double the prophetic time and render it ten symbolical months of thirty days each. And according to the prophetic style of a day for a year, this would amount to a period of three centuries. There is, however, no necessity for thus doubling the time specified. It is indeed twice mentioned in the text, but not with the design of adding the two sums together. Bishop Newton is more correct in rendering the interpretation 150 years. The effects of the judgment announced by the sounding of the fifth trumpet may remain for a much longer space of time, but the torments inflicted by the Arabian locusts are represented as peculiarly great during the period of five months, being 150 prophetic days, a century and a half. This trumpet must be accordingly explained of the woe caused by the Mohammedan Saracens for the space of 150 years after the rise of their false prophet. The events of that period are so interesting a part of the history of man and had such an effect upon the Christian churches of the East that they ought to be known to intelligent men and undoubtedly merit a place in the sacred system of prophecy. That great peninsula, which is washed on the south and east by the waves of the Indian Ocean and Persian Gulf, and on the west by the waters of the Red Sea, has since the remotest ages been known by the name Arabah or Arabia. This name it received from the most distinguished of its original settlers, Yarab. Footnote, Jera, Genesis 10:26. End of footnote. 
the son of Joktan, and the fifth in descent from Shem, the son of Noah. Ishmael, the son of Abram by Hagar, settled with his family in this country, and his descendants were mingled with the former inhabitants. It was not long before the idolatry of the Sabaeans, who derived their name from Seba, the great-grandson of Joktan, became prevalent through the greater part of this extensive territory. But of its internal history from the time of Moses until the commencement of the Christian era, we know very little. From the Greeks and Romans we have derived our knowledge of ancient nations, and as Arabia defied the power of these conquering empires, they have not been at the pains of describing, describing its geography or recording its history. The Jews were scattered throughout this country at a very early period, and the first ministers of Christianity planted churches among the Arabs. Before the close of the 6th century, the period in which Arabian history became generally interesting, the Nestorian heresy had spread over the greater part of the churches of this peninsula. Piety and morals had declined along with, the, with orthodoxy among Christians, and the Jews and the idolaters adhered to their religion more from habit than any conviction of duty. The most powerful of the Arabian tribes were the Korish, descendants of Ishmael. They possessed the distinguished honor of being guardians to the Kaaba, and the chief uni chiefs united with the love and the practice of war, the profession of merchandise. Footnote. The Kaaba was the sacred temple of these idolaters. It stood in the city of Mecca and contained about 360 idols, besides the statue of Hobal, the principal object of their worship. To this temple, a yearly visit, accompanied with gifts and costly oblations, must be paid by the devotees of, from all parts of Arabia. End of footnote. They, they carried on an extensive and lucrative commerce between Persia and Egypt and in India and Ethiopia. In the year 579 was born at Mecca the celebrated Muhammad, the king and apostle of the Arabs, or to use the words of the sacred text, Apollyon the destroyer, king of the locusts. Footnote. The prophet Muhammad can no longer be stripped of the famous, though improper, appellation of Muhammad. The well-known cities of Aleppo, Damascus, and Cairo would almost be lost in the strange descriptions of Halib, Damascus, and Al-Qahira. And we are pleased to blend the three Chinese monosyllables, Confuci, in the respectful name of Confucius. Given. End of footnote. He was descended from one of the most ancient and powerful families. His father, Abdullah, was the favorite son of Mataleb, a man of great opulence and liberality, who succeeded his father, Hashem, in the principality of Mecca and custody of the Kaaba. The aged Mataleb outlived his son and took under his protection the orphan grandson. In the eighth year of his age, however, Muhammad was deprived of this guardian and came, of course, under the immediate protection of Abu Talib, his uncle, who himself emerging of first rank and wealth, now succeeded to all the dignities of his deceased father. It appears to me altogether improper, therefore, to represent this impostor as rising from obscurity to eminence exclusively by his own merit. He was left, indeed, in early life an orphan without a patrimonial inheritance, but he had no alliance with poverty. 
He was educated in the first families of the age. His connections were the first in power and rank. He traveled along with his uncle through Syria and Egypt while engaged in mercantile pursuits. He was early made acquainted with the absurd mysteries of the prevailing religion and under Abu Talib, the victorious general of the Quraysh, he served in a successful war in which he acquired the rudiments of the science in which he afterwards became so famous in the East. In the 28th year of his age, Muhammad found himself possessed of independent property and to his aspiring mind the most flattering prospects began to be unfolded. This state of things was brought about by his marriage with Kadira, an opulent widow of Mecca, whose extensive mercantile concerns he had, for three years from the death of her first husband, conducted to great advantage. He now began to cherish the hope that he might repair the loss incurred by the death of his father Abdullah, who he had survived his gra- who, had he survived his grandfather, would have been the heir of his fortunes, and would of course have transmitted to his son the first dignities of Mecca. His intercourse with men of different nations and religions was sufficient to convince him that, in that age, there was no possibility of acquiring influence over the minds of men without some show of religion. That of the Kaaba was evidently declining, and in its present state, the chief office of the system was lodged in other and very powerful hands, from which he could have no hopes of wresting it for himself. The Christians were greatly divided, and the Jewish system was not well adapted to the condition of the Arabians. New sects of different descriptions were frequently springing up with various success. He resolved to become the prophet and apostle of a new religion. Intelligent, wealthy, courageous, crafty, ambitious, and eloquent, he had much to expect from his influence with the people, and the patronage of his powerful relatives promised him in the beginning protection from danger. He was, in short, remarkably qualified to be the king of barbarous fanatics or an angel of hell. All that was necessary was to open the pit that the smoke which generated the locusts might issue forth, that a suitable system of religion might be contrived for the deluded inhabitants of Arabia, a mongrel race of idolaters, half convinced of the folly of their present faith of Jews, who knew but little of their own Bible, and of professed Christians without understanding or piety. Muhammad now felt one deficiency which was likely to prove irremediable. He, with all his natural talents and acquirements, lived in in a society into which literature had never been introduced, and he could not himself either read or write. The Jews and the Christians were commonly designated as the people of the book, and no new system could be reasonably expected to prove successful without it were placed in that respect upon a footing with others. Without the smoke of the pit, nothing could be done. The Koran must be contrived and executed, and to this task the son of Abdullah is entirely unequal. He had not the key of the abyss. The Koran is the smoke which, from which the locusts spread over the land, and the author of the Koran, whoever he is, and it is certain it could not be the pretended apostle himself, is the person designated in the prophecy as the fallen star unto whom was given the key of the bottomless pit. Footnote. 
Mr. Gibbon, who appears to have had a great affection for the impostor Muhammad, as well as for the Julian the apostate, admits that the false prophet was illiterate and even censures Mr. White in the Bampton lecture for suggesting a doubt upon the subject. I think it, however, extremely probable that the genius of Muhammad could not be satisfied with remaining entirely ignorant of letters. He certainly had a sufficient opportunity of learning at least how to read and write. I I suspect this was in part his business with with Sergius, and during the time of his retirement in the cave of Eura, unremitted attention for two or three years might accomplish this object. End of footnote. This man is Sergius. To him must be ascribed the work of composing the religion of the Mussulman. The histories of the age appear, it is true, at a loss whether to ascribe the work to a Jew, a Persian, or a monk, for each of these three were associates of the impostor. But internal evidence is furnished by the Quran itself that it owes its origin to someone acquainted with Christianity, and undoubtedly the apocalyptical prediction determines the question. It was a fallen star that opened the bottomless pit and set loose the smoke of the imposture from whence issued the Arabian locust under their king, the destroyer. Sergius, called by the Arabian writers, the monk Bahaira, was a minister of the Christian church who had fallen into error and immorality of the deepest dye. He had belonged to that class of people who in those days of dissension were called Nestorians from the celebrated bishop Nestorius of Constantinople. The dispute between this arrogant prelate and the still more haughty Cyril, bishop of Alexandria, had more of ambitious policy than of religion to give it origin and support. It began about the titles of the Virgin Mary, and the question was whether she ought to be honored with the epithet, Greek word, or Mother of God. Nestorius in adopting the negative, was upon the side of truth. This dispute, however, continued until, in vain attempts to explain the union of the two natures in Christ, the Nestorians asserted that there were two persons united under one aspect. This fixed upon them the charge of heresy, and their enemies triumphed. To this sect of Christians spread over Persia and Arabia before the time of Muhammad, Sergius, the intimate associate of Muhammad and the principal contriver of the system which bears that impostor's name belonged. He had contracted an intimacy with the useful and engaging nephew of Abu Talib, whom he first met at Basra, a city on the confines of Syria. Footnote. Pocock, History, Arabia, page 53-127. to End of footnote and it was further cherished by the particular attention afterwards bestowed upon him by the elegant husband of the opulent Kadira when he revisited that city or when they met at Jerusalem. Footnote. Prido's Life of Muhammad, page 32. End of footnote. Shortly after this, Sergius, for high crimes, was degraded from his ministry and became a fallen star excommunicated from the church and expelled from the monastery, he fled to Mecca. A man of genius and literature, suited to the purposes of Muhammad, and now reduced to the necessity of laboring for his bread, 
he entered readily into the views of the grandson of the famed Motalib. Both were unrestrained by moral principle. The one was needy, and the other a splendid merchant of uncommon address and boundless ambition. This will account for the connection which they formed. Theophanes, Zonaras, Sendrianus, Anastius, the author of the Historia Micella, Friar Richard, and several other historians speak of this fallen monk, both under his proper name and that of Bahira, which he assumed in Arabia as the agent in composing the Quran. Footnote. Bahira is an Arabic word signifying a camel turned out on account of its former usefulness to free pasture. End of footnote. Second footnote. Prido's Life of Muhammad, page 31-33. End of footnote. He was the Gabriel of Muhammad. Footnote. The impostor pretended immediate intercourse with the angel Gabriel. End of footnote. When Sergius had finished his task, he was put to death by his base patron for fear he should afterwards betray the imposture. The new religion progressed after a few years with extraordinary rapidity, and in its progress became the woe announced by the fifth apocalyptical trumpet which fell upon the eastern empire and ravaged the adjacent countries, tormenting men for 150 years of Saracenic invasion and conquest. It was in the year 606 Muhammad commenced his imposture by retiring under pretense of extraordinary sanctity to the cave of Hira. In 612, he appeared as the apostle at the head of his disciples publicly to propagate the new doctrine. Then did the locust issue from the smoke of the pit opened by the excommunicated monk under their king Apollyon. In the year 762, the Caliph al-Mansur built the city of Baghdad and called it the City of Peace. A stop was then put to the devastation of the locusts. The Saracen Empire continued for a longer time, but after this period it lost the disorderly locust character and became a more regular commonwealth. Between the, six, between the years 612 and 762, during the five months of prophecy, or 150 years, the Saracens overrun and subdued with terrible depredations Syria, Persia, India, Egypt, and Spain. We may now say with the text, verse 12, One woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. The second woe is announced in the succeeding verses, to which we now turn your attention. Trumpet 6 verses 13 to 21. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, and smoke, and brimstone. 
By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were likened to serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest, and the rest of men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stood, stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. This is the description laid before us of the second woe. The first had already passed in vision before the Apostle John. One woe is past. Two additional woes shall put a period to the empire which is the object of these several judgments. There come two woes more hereafter. The Eastern Empire, the object of the first woe, still continued to stand and is, of course, attacked under the sixth trumpet. Meanwhile, the Western Empire revives under a new form and becomes both more guilty in the sight of God and more alarmingly interesting to the Church. And, in this character, it is the principal subject of both description and judgment in the succeeding prophecies of the Revelation. Its downfall is affected by the third woe or the seventh trumpet. At present, however, we are to expound the sixth trumpet. I have already in this discourse given my reasons for applying the first and second woe to the Christian Empire as it still remained in the East, Constantinople being the seat of power. The Arabian locust under Mohammed gave to this power a shock of great violence, but it is under the sixth trumpet that it is completely overthrown. History so minutely describes this overthrow and the means by which it was effected that there is no avoiding the application of the second woe to the Mohammedan conquerors of the empire of the Caesars. The text itself, too, is so obviously descriptive of these invaders that almost every commentator of celebrity explains it of the followers of the imposter of Mecca. Meade and Newton and Faber, particularly, have so correctly illustrated the judgment of this trumpet that I deem it sufficient to refer, refer you to these writers for a satisfactory discussion. The objections of Mr. Woodhouse to this part of the scheme of interpretation are effectually superseded by the considerations already submitted. Even he, however, is constrained to acknowledge the application of the sixth trumpet to the Mohammedan devastations. The objects which, in this part of scripture, require the attention of the expositor are the Euphratian angels, the specified time of their conquest, and the character and consequences of their warfare. First, the Euphratian angels and horsemen, verses 13, 14, and 16. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, and the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand. The command to loose the four angels is from the Lord God of heaven and earth, a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Vengeance upon the sins of men is proclaimed from the very sanctuary. The, sa the Savior inflicts merited punishment upon them who neglect the salvation which he offers. The command to loose is immediately obeyed. 
The four angels which were thus set at liberty to bring the second woe upon the Eastern Empire are the four principal sultanies of the Turks. These were seated in their respected, respective capitals, Baghdad, Damascus, Aleppo, and Iconium. It is not taking an unjust liberty with the text to explain the four angels as a prophetical symbol of four sovereignties. An angel is a messenger, and when communities are employed in the providence of God for accomplishing his work, it is perfectly in point to represent them as his messengers. A similar use is made of the term angel in reference to ecclesiastical proceedings in the descriptive part of the Apocalypse. In the epistles to the churches of Asia Minor, the whole ministry of each city is addressed as one distinct community under the title of the Angel of the Church. This is evident from the fact that the one figurative angel is frequently addressed as many distinct agents throughout these epistles. It is equally, equally appropriate to represent as an angel any other community employed in its united character under a suitable leader to execute the will of God. It is not at all necessary to this interpretation that these four Turkish sultanates should have always existed as distinct sovereignties or that this people should ne never should have made war upon any Christian nation before the sounding of the sixth trumpet. But if before the time pointed out in the sacred prediction the Turks had been well known and four Turkish sultanates had in fact existed and had also been well known as distinct communities, although actually acknowledging at the time of this woe one common head, there is certainly no incongruity in designating them as in the text under consideration. England, Scotland, and Ireland are still commonly spoken of as the three kingdoms, although they have been united for two centuries under one sovereign. The words of the prophecy furnish us with other reasons for adopting this interpretation, and defending it from the animadversions of Archdeacon Woodhouse. The four angels were bound in the great river Euphrates, and it is not until they were loosed that as myriads of horsemen they marched on their ferocious warfare for the entire subversion of the Greek Empire. The location of these four powers in the regions, watered by this mighty stream, affords a geographical description too accurate to be overlooked. Every scholar acquainted with the history of the Turks is well assured that this was the principal seat of their power for a long period of time preceding their successful attacks upon the empire of Constantinople. Mr. Joseph Mead and Bishop Newton have both faithfully applied the facts to the prediction. I shall show in the proper place that there is sufficient reason for understanding figuratively the river Euphrates in the judgment of the sixth vial inflicted upon the symbolical Babylon, the Latin Roman Empire, although in this case we understand it literally as designating the country from which the enemy came who overthrew the eastern image of the Caesars. In the territories adjoining the Euphrates, the Turkish sultanies had providentially been confined against their will by the successful expedition of the European Christians until the latter part of the 13th century. Then the angels of destruction were loosed, and the Euphratian horsemen in immense multitudes fell upon the subjects of the Christian Empire of the East, and the number of the army of horsemen were 200,000,000. Second, 
The specified time of their conquest next demands our attention. Verse 15 And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. The third part of men is the prophetical expression for the subjects of the great empire, the object of this woe. To torment these men, the expression employed under the preceding woe, verse 5, is to harass and distress the empire, but to slay them signifies the extinction of his name and power. This was to have been accomplished in a definite time. A year, in the symbolical style, consists of as many natural years as there are, according to the Jewish chronology, natural days in a year, and thus the hour, day, month, and year will amount to a period of 391 years and 15 days. An hour is the 24th part of a day, and consequently in prophetical style represents the 24th part of a year, each day for a year. Ezekiel 4.6 Footnote See also in explanation of the origin of this mode of calculation, Numbers 14.34, and in confirmation, Daniel 9.21. End of footnote. An hour is 15 days, a day is one year, a month is 30 years, a year is 360 years, the whole time 391 years and 15 days. According to this calculation, the time allotted for the complete subjugation of the Constantinopolitan power and for the establishment of the Turkish Empire upon its ruins is from the first success of the Euphratian horsemen a period of 391 years and a few days. Had history been as faithful to the dates in respect of days as it has been in mentioning the years in which signal events have come to pass, there is no doubt but the most perfect precision would apply in appearing the facts to the sacred prediction. The first conquests of the Ottoman Turks over the Christians took place in the capture of the famous city Kutahi, and the last victory by which any advantages accrued to that power in the augmentation of the empire was at the capture of Kameniek. Kameniek was taken in 1672, Kutahi was taken in 1281. Subtracted from one another equals 391. The Turks, says Mr. Faber, under Ortogrul, gained their first victory over the Greek Empire in the year 1261 by the conquest of Kutahi. In the year 1357 they crossed over into Europe. In the year 1453 they took Constantinople, and the remaining provinces of the empire soon followed the fate of the capital. In the year 1669 they made themselves master of Crete, and in the year 1672 they wrested Kameniak, their last conquest, from the Poles. Third, the character and consequences of this warfare. The besieging armies were an immense multitude, 200,000,000. Mohammed II had at the siege of Constantinople a, fl a fleet of 230 sail and an army of 400,000 men to cooperate with his naval force. A very great proportion of this army was cavalry. The horsemen appeared in vision as if they had breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. The, co the color of fire is red, 
that of jacinth or hyacinth, blue, and of brimstone, yellow. And this, said Mr. Dabos, had a literal accomplishment, for the Ottomans, from the first time of their appearance, have affected to wear such warlike apparel of scarlet, blue, and yellow. The heads of their horses were as the heads of lions, to denote their strength, their courage, and their fierceness. Out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone, which destroyed the men that opposed them. This refers to the terrible mode of warfare, unknown indeed at the time of the prediction, which was introduced under the sixth trumpet and hath since been practiced, ex practiced extensively among the nations which are called civilized, the destruction produced by gunpowder. The artillery employed by Muhammad, the son of Amurath, at the siege of Constantinople was of astonishing size and produced upon the walls of that proud city a corresponding effect. One of these great guns is said to have been drawn by seventy yoke of oxen and to have discharged rocks of three hundred pounds weight. The army under consideration bore in some things a sti striking resemblance to the Saracenic locusts. They had tails like unto serpents and had power to do hurt by their tails. The wild and raging fanaticism which animated these ferocious Mohammedans followed them where the, wheresoever they went. Their soul-destroying religion was propagated with unabating zeal and daring cruelty, and they triumphed alike over the persons and the principles of all that opposed them. The Bible was torn from the hands of the degenerate Christians and committed before their eyes to the flames, and they were themselves compelled throughout the extent of the empire to do homage to the Koran. The consequences were not salutary, or such as indicated reformation among those who still remained in the profession of the Christian faith, either in Europe or in Asia. The idolatries, the heresies, the immoralities, and the gross superstition which provoked the divine indignation against those who perverted the gospel of God were still adhered to with per persevering obstinacy. Mercy had been abused, and even judgments were unprofitable to a graceless people. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. The Greek church fell with the Constantinopolitan Empire. It was first in the transgression and it first received its doom. The Latin Roman Church refused to take warning by the woe of the sixth trumpet, and still persists, persists in its impious league with the beast with ten horns. The third woe, or seventh trumpet, puts a period to the whole system of iniquity, but the consideration of this judgment must for the present be postponed. The time of the seventh trumpet falls within the third great prophetical period which we have designated the period of the vials. Before we proceed to the investigation of the predictions which have reference to it, this lecture must be brought to a close, and we shall do so with the following, following reflections. The concluding reflections respect the nature of the Mohammedan religion, the progress of the great power which is its principal support, and the necessity of carefully distinguishing from every other religion that personal piety which, through the faith of the gospel, prepares for eternal life. First, 
the Mohammedan religion. The creed of the Muslim is essentially the same with that of the Socinians, which they presumptuously denominate Unitarian, as if they alone worshipped one God. The coincidence between the religion of the Mohammedan and that of the modern Socinians has been distinctly perceived by the respectable writers of different countries and has been acknowledged by Socinians themselves. Footnote. The learned Hottinger, Historia Orientalis, compares the doctrines of both these systems together and points out their coincidence. The Dean of Norwich has not omitted making the same remark, and Dr. Maggie, the author of a very learned, acute, and instructive work on the subject of the scriptural atonement and sacrifice, illustrates an assertion of a similar import by a note which I take the liberty of laying before my readers at full length. It deserves to be noticed that a complacency for the religion of Mohammed is a character by which the liberality of the Socinian or Unitarian is not less distinguished than that of the Deist. The reason assigned for this by Mr. Van Mildert is a just one. Mohammedanism is admired by both because it sets aside those distinguishing doctrines of the gospel, the divinity of Christ, and the sacrifice upon the cross, and prepares the way for what the latter are pleased to dignify with the title of natural religion, and the former with that of rational Christianity. Van Mildert's Boyle Lecture, Volume 1, page 208. The same writer also truly remarks, page 202, that besides exhibiting a strange compound of heathen and Jewish errors, the Code of Muhammad comprises almost every heterodox opinion that has ever been entertained respecting the Christian faith. Indeed, the decided part which the Unitarians have heretofore taken with the Prophet of Mecca seems not to be sufficiently adverted to at the present day. The curious reader, if he will turn to Mr. Leslie's theological works, Volume 1, page 207, will not be a little entertained to see conveyed in a solemn address from the English Unitarians to the Mohammedan ambassador of Morocco in the reign of Charles II, a cordial approbation of Mohammed and the Koran. The one is said to have been raised up by God to scourge the idolizing Christians, whilst the other is spoken of as a precious record of the true faith. Mohammed they represent to be a preacher of the gospel of Christ, and they describe themselves to be his fellow champions for the truth. The mode of warfare they admit, they admit indeed to be different, but the object contended for they assert to be the same. We, with our Unitarian brethren, have been in all ages exercised to defend with our pens the faith of the one supreme God, as he hath raised your Mohammed to do the same with the sword as a scourge on those idolizing Christians. Page 209 Leslie, upon a full and deliberate view of the case, admits the justice of the claim set up by the Unitarians to be admitted to rank with the followers of Muhammad, pronouncing the one to have as good a title to the appellation of Christians as the other, page 337. On a disclosure by Mr. Leslie of the attempt which had been thus made by the Socinians to form a confederacy with the Muhammadans, the authentic authenticity of the address and the plan of the projected coalition at the same time were strenuously denied. The truth of Mr. Leslie's statement, however, 
of which from the character of the man no doubt could well have been at any time entertained, has been since most fully and incontrovertibly confirmed. See Whitaker's Origin of Arianism, page 399. Mr. Leslie also shows that this Unitarian scheme of extolling Mohammedanism as the only true Christianity continued for a length of time to be acted on with activity and perseverance. He established this at large by extracts from certain of their publications in which it is endeavored to prove that Muhammad had no other design but to restore the belief of the unity of God, which at that time was extirpated among the Eastern Christians by the doctrines of the Trinity and Incarnation. That Muhammad meant not that his religion should be esteemed a new religion, but only the restitution of the true intent of the Christian religion. That the Mohammedan learned men call themselves the true disciples of the Messiah, and to crown all, that Mohammedanism has prevailed so greatly, not by force and the sword, but by that one truth in the Quran, the unity of God. And as a just consequence from all this, it is strongly contended that the Tartars had acted more rationally in embracing the sect of Muhammad than the Christian faith of the Trinity, Incarnation, etc. Leslie, Volume 1, pages 216 and 217. Maggie, On Atonement, page 85. New York, 1813. Did worldly policy answer... There can be no doubt that Unitarians would rather bear the name of Muhammad than of Sosinus, and would prefer the Quran to the best system of Christian theology. End of footnote. Professing reverence for the Christian scriptures, these Unitarians quote them, reject them, and pervert them at pleasure, and pretend to found upon them their own incoherent and impious dogmas. The impostor of Mecca admitted the divine origin of both the Old and the New Testament, and gave out that they both predicted his own mission as superior to Moses and even to Jesus Christ. In the 61st chapter, the Quran has these words, Remember that Jesus, the son of Mary, said to the children of Israel, I am the messenger of God. He hath sent me to confirm the Old Testament and to declare unto you that there shall come a prophet after me, whose name shall be Muhammad. Footnote. Priddle's Life of Muhammad Page 110, London, 1808. End of footnote. Four texts of scripture are employed to prove that the son of Abdullah was a teacher sent from God. Deuteronomy 33.2 Psalm 50.2 Isaiah 21.7 John 26.7 I shall not, however, take up your time by repeating the argument or the criticism upon these passages. There is none of you in danger of taking Muhammad for the comforter. As the Mohammedan system rejects the idea of an atonement and of the sinner's total and original depravity, it entirely discards the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. There is, of course, no place in this system for regeneration or sanctification in the Christian acceptance of these terms. Friday is the Sabbath of the Muslim because they say God on that day created man. Prayer and fasting and almsgiving are the principal ordinances of religion except a pilgrimage to Mecca, which is required expressly from every Muslim once in his life. The doctrine of fatalism is derived from Muhammad from the divine decrees. 
religion is to be propagated by the sword rather than by argument, and the heaven of the false prophet is modeled, according to his own brutal appetite for the female sex, into a place of sensual gratification. It has been much disputed whether he was a fanatic or a deceiver, but there is no ground for such disputation. He was both. He was enthusiastically ambitious. He believed, probably in many falsehoods, and he contrived others to carry his own purposes into effect. Many indeed are the contradictions of his Koran, and all admit that much of his pretended revelation was published in order to cover the crimes he had previously committed. His apologist, Mr. Gibbon, cannot deny what he endeavors to palliate. In his private conduct, Muhammad indulged the appetites of a man and abused the claims of a prophet. A special revelation dispensed him from the laws which he had imposed on his nation. The female sex, without reserve, was abandoned to his desires, and this singular prerogative excited the envy rather than the scandal, the veneration rather than the envy of the devout Muslim Footnote History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire Volume 6, page 291 Philadelphia, 1805 End of footnote Dean Prito, with his characteristic industry and good sense, examines this religion, compares its claim with those of Christianity upon our faith, and proves it an imposture. The marks of an imposture which this writer gives deserve to be held in remembrance. They may, with propriety in other cases, also answer as a criterion by which we may try the conduct of men. They are illustrated in his letter to the Deists, annexed to his life of Muhammad. Such, Christians, is the nature of that cruel and carnal religion which has been forced upon millions of the human family by the sword of a barbarous and fanatical foe, which fell as a woe by the just judgments of God upon a corrupt church and empire, which triumphed effectually over the proud battlements of Constantinople and which holds in ignorance and bondage until this day a sixth part of the inhabitants of the earth. Second, the progress of the great power, which is at present the principal support of the Mohammedan delusion, deserves attention as the 1260 years of its prevalence against true religion are drawing near an end. Footnote. I shall hereafter show the justness of this computation. End of footnote. Having spread generally through the east under the empire of the Saracens, according to the predictions of the fifth trumpet, the first woe, it was by the success of the Ottoman Turks the religion of Muhammad became established throughout the vast extent of the Christian empire of the eastern Caesars. The Turks originally occupied the highlands of Siberia, now occupied by the Tartars and Kalmucks, extending from Kaf, or Emmaus, to Mount Atlas, being probably the center and the summit of Asia. They were the most contemptible of the slaves working the iron forges of the great Khan of Geogen. At first a ferocious and lawless race, they soon enslaved under the auspices of an upstart leader their former masters and became a terror to the surrounding nations. Roman history takes notice of them as early as the age of Pliny, and 600 years before the Ottoman power was known, they were a terror not only to the Chinese, but also to the Greek Roman Empire. Spreading to the south, several tribes of the Turks became subject to the Saracenic Empire, 
and the Caliph Motasem had in the 9th century upwards of 50,000 Turkish youth educated in the Mohammedan religion as the guards of his capital. The progress of the Turks is rapidly sketched with a masterly hand in the following sentence which I quote from a well-known historian. Their Scythian empire of the 6th century was long since dissolved, but the name was still famous among the Greeks and Orientals, and the fragments of the nation, each a powerful and independent people, were scattered over the desert from China to the Oxus and the Danube. The colony of Hungarians was admitted into the Republic of Europe, and the thrones of Asia were occupied by slaves and soldiers of Turkish extraction, while Apulia and Sicily were subdued by the Norman lands, a swarm of these northern shepherds overspread the kingdoms of Persia. Their princes of the race of Seljuk erected a splendid and solid empire from Samarkand to the confines of Greece and Egypt, and the Turks have maintained their dominion in Asia Minor till the victorious crescent has been planted on the dome of St. Sophia. Footnote History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire Volume 7, page 157 End of footnote In the space of 25 years, from 1055 to 1080, Togrul Beg, Ducas, Milek, and Kutlu Musas, and his son, erected four distinct sultanies in the regions watered by the Euphrates, and fixed their respective thrones in Baghdad, Damascus, Aleppo, and Iconium. Confined to their own country as bound angels, it was not until some hundred years thereafter the Turks, who had been previously united under Othman, the founder of the Ottoman Empire, were let loose to invade the dominions of the Greek Christians. That power, since the present commotions of modern Europe have commenced, appears rap- rapidly on the decline, and it continues to exist only by the jealousies which vainly strive to preserve the balance of empire in the great commonwealth of civilized nations. Third, let us, in reviewing this fanaticism, learn to distinguish true religion from every other system. Skepticism often proceeds from the contemplation of the numerous and disorderly sectaries which make a pretension of real religion. Because the understanding is amazed and the moral sense is hardened at the sight of so many extravagancies and delusions as have from time to time distracted the nations and the churches of the world. Every religion purposes to make man happy in the worship of a superior being. The Christian religion alone teaches that the sinner cannot have friendship with God but in a divine mediator upon the footing of a perfectly satisfactory atonement. This, brethren, is its essential characteristic. In order to be, even in theory, a true Christian, it is indispensably necessary to believe that every sinner is, in himself considered, justly condemned to everlasting punishment, that Jesus Christ has made perfect satisfaction to divine justice for the sins of men, and that justice not only admits, but requires that every sinner who is united by grace to Jesus Christ in the new covenant shall being in Christ be saved with an everlasting salvation. To be a Christian, not merely in theory, but in fact, is to be thus united by a living faith to the only Redeemer of God's elect. Such are the Christians 
who profit by the sorrows of life, who seek the glory of their Father and their God, who are unhurt by the trumpet of woe, and who, under the sound of the glorious gospel, march to conquest and to triumph. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lecture 7 The Seventh Trumpet, or Third Woe Revelation 11:14-19. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. To propose maxims of civil polity, said the very eloquent Sarin, in his discourse on the words of Solomon, Proverbs 14, verse 34, Righteousness exalts the nation. To propose maxims of civil polity in a religious assembly, to propose maxim of religion in a political assembly, are two things which seem alike senseless and imprudent. The Christian is so often distinguished from the statesman that it would seem that they are opposite characters. If the pastor of the French church at The Hague spoke th- thus spoke to his audience in the beginning of the last century, footnote 1706, end of footnote, he would have no reason to alter his opinion had he been now in the 19th century addressing an American assembly. In this country, where everyone is a politician and few are religious, the sentiments of the many predominate. The politics of every man influences his religion. Religion has little influence on politics. This political degradation of Christianity is not, however, peculiar to the United States. It is universally prevalent among the nations of Christendom. Here, indeed, the general opinion is that religion is no fit subject of political consideration, civil polity is no fit subject of religious consideration, but in other countries the state has intermeddled with Christianity in order to degrade religion itself under pretense of establishing the church, and the priests have sold the Christians' rights and liberties to the reigning authorities. This state of things was both foreseen and foretold by the Lord Jesus Christ, the author of our religion and the governor of all the nations of the earth. The awful consequences of such a state were also predicted, together with the period of time when a happy change would be effected. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth in consequence of their abuse of Christianity. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The seventh trumpet being now under consideration, we shall endeavor to settle the question respecting its chronology, 
unfold the contents of his predictions, and make some appropriate animadversions. The period of the trumpets, it has already been shown, commenced at the close of that of the seals, or rather at the opening of the seventh seal in the fourth century, footnote, and the object of the judgments announced by the trumpets is the Roman Empire, the fourth beast of prophecy, degrading the Christian religion into a corrupt system interwoven with its own tyrannical polity. The first four trumpets accomplished the overthrow of ancient Rome by the complete dismemberment of the Western Empire of the Caesars. The fifth tormented and the sixth destroyed the Greek Empire, leaving the Ottoman power in possession of the throne of Constantinople. These two are woe trumpets as well as that one which is in the theme of the present discourse. Early in the 7th century, the first woe was sounded, and the judgment commenced in 612. The torments inflicted upon the adjacent nations for 150 years were peculiarly great, but the Saracenic conquests were, super, were suspended in 762. The remote effects of the first woe still nevertheless continue. The destructive period of the Euphradian horsemen commenced in the year 1281 and continued for 391 years, terminated in 1672. About 600 years of confusion intervened between the first and second woe, but the time between the second and the third, between the year 1672 and the sounding of the seventh trumpet, is comparatively short. This is evident from inspection of the sacred text and we accordingly proceed to show, first, the time of the third woe. In settling the chronological question, we shall lay before you, number one, the argument from verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Several valuable expositors have been misled by an improper interpretation of the expression, the second woe is past it being understood by some to signify merely that the hieroglyphical representation to John the Divine had passed before the representation of the second woe appeared. They, of course, date the third woe soon after the second without allowing time for the 391 years to be expended. Others, upon the contrary, imagining that the power by which the second woe was inflicted must become extinct before the third woe commences postpone the period of the seventh trumpet until the final overthrow of the Ottoman Empire. Both are certainly mistaken. The assertion, the second woe is past, does not respect the existence of the power which inflicts, but of the judgment itself inflicted during the specified time of 391 years upon the Greek Christian Empire. It was not of the vision it was said it is past, but of the woe which was represented in vision. It was therefore in the year 1672 that the second woe was in fact passed. The text assures us that the third woe cometh quickly after this year. Greek word, the Greek word rendered quickly, must be understood comparatively, swift and slow, although in what grammarians denominate the positive form, have nevertheless a comparative signification. A swift horse, a sharp instrument, a great man are expressions which necessarily imply comparison, although the adjective is not in what is called the comparative degree. And in each instance, the comparison is confined to objects of a like kind. Greek word 
must be explained upon this principle. It must be understood comparatively and the comparison must be with the other woe trumpets already expounded. It is also disputed whether the celerity implied in the words cometh quickly is ascribed to the time intervening between the second and third woe or to the time in which this woe itself is in fact inflicted. I see no reason for denying its application to both and therefore conclude that the third woe follows the second in a much quicker succession than the second did the first and that the judgment which it inflicts is more speedy in its execution than either of the former two. At the conclusion of the first woe it was said, chapter 9 verse 12, there come two woes more hereafter. But in this case it is said, the third woe cometh quickly. We are thus given to understand that a considerable space of time would intervene between the fifth and sixth trumpet, and but a short space between the sixth and the seventh. Now, as these trumpets occupied the one a period of 150 years and the other a period of nearly 400, the intervening period, in order to be comparatively great, should exceed any of those numbers. We find accordingly that it was, in fact, upwards of 500 years. But the third woe, or seventh trumpet, approaches with comparative celerity. The intervening time will not probably exceed 150 years, and the tremendous judgment which the last woe brings will execute its purposes in a much shorter space of time. These considerations would lead us to expect, even independently of what our eyes have seen and our ears have heard, some terrible scourge to the apostate nations about the period in which we live. I shall not speak, not at present speak more pointedly, but, number two, proceed by another train of reasoning to ascertain the period of the seventh trumpet. You will have observed at the time of my reading this text that I passed over a large and very interesting portion of the Apocalypse, the whole tenth chapter and the greater part of the eleventh. Every attentive reader will readily perceive that the seventh trumpet is separated from the preceding trumpets by a great deal of other matter in the actual arrangement of the book of Revelation. This is the more worthy of notice because it is a singular instance of deviation from what we may call the natural order. The seven epistles to the Asian churches follow one another in regular succession and without interruption. The seven seals are opened in similar order, and no foreign event is introduced to unsettle or distract the chronology. The first six trumpets proceed the one after the other in the same order in the written revelation which the events predicted follow in their accomplishment. The seven vials are poured out in the same manner, and the account of them in the 16th chapter is not interrupted by any other narrative. The suspension of the history of the woes, which takes place between the second and the third, is therefore evidently without a parallel. Nor is this fact owing to the intervening length of time, for the one follows the other, as we have already seen, with comparative celerity. The interposition of the seventh chapter between the narrative of the sixth and the se- of the seventh seal is not at all the case of the same description. That which is foretold in that chapter really belongs to the very time at which it is introduced. The four angels who stayed the winds of heaven and the act of the angel sealing among the, se- among the twelve tribes of Israel, the true servants of the living God, 
Both belonged to the age of Constantine and his three sons and were the means of preserving from the prevalent corruptions of religion the actual Church of Christ. It is quite otherwise in the case under consideration. The 11th chapter, from the beginning to the 14th verse, introduces a subject quite distinct from the history of the trumpets and gives, in a compendious form, the prospective history of a much greater period than that of the 6th and 7th trumpets taken together, a period of 1,260 years. There must be a satisfactory reason for this singular fact. Wisdom is justified of her children, and we proceed to lay the reason before you. The objects of all the trumpets is the punishment and demolition of the great Roman Empire, the fourth beast of Daniel's prophecy. This object had, in fact, been effected under the first four trumpets so far as it respected the Latin imperial power by the complete dismemberment of the Western Empire. And as it respected the Eastern Empire, the object had been fully accomplished in the judgments of the two succeeding trumpets. What then remained for the seventh trumpet? Is the third woe without an object? Must we violate the principle of homogeneity in the interpretation of these judgments? These questions are of easy solution. History sheds a light upon the prophecy. It lays the facts before us, and there is wanting only judgment to make the application. The Roman Empire still exists, although in a divided state. Both in name and in character, it is found in Europe, even after the Second Woe destroyed the Greek Empire in 1672. The Emperor of Germany has long claimed and received the title of head of the Holy Roman Empire, and the several governments within the geographical boundaries of the Latin Empire are still of that description which requires judgments and merits woe. Their civil establishments are without exception a complex system of tyranny and corrupt Christianity. As the object of the trumpets is homogeneous, no sooner was the western throne of the Caesars overthrown than they proceeded in chronological order to the demolition of the Greek Empire. While that work is, re- is progressing, the beast reappears in the west. His deadly wound is healed. He reassumes his warfare against the saints with ten distinct horns or separate kingdoms. He strives to silence in death all the witnesses that gave testimony for the true religion against his corruptions, and long before the sixth trumpet had established the Ottoman power upon the throne of Constantine the Great, the object of the third woe was presented in the West to the angel who held, by the appointment of God, the seventh trumpet. It was necessary, therefore, that the apocalypse should interrupt, for a little, the prophetic narrative of the seven trumpets, in order to introduce to view that system which arose during the execution of other judgments, as the object of the woe announced by the sounding of the last trumpet. The whole of chapter 10 and 11 verses 1 through 13 may be considered as parenthetical, and it would have greatly facilitated the exertions of the reader to understand the subject had this been attended to by those who divided the Bible into chapters. The narrative of the trumpets proceeds from the close of chapter 9 to chapter 11 verse 14, the paragraph with which constitutes the text under discussion. From this train of reasoning, it appears that the anti-Christian Roman Empire is the object of the third woe. 
that empire still stands, and of course this judgment is not passed. But it cannot stand longer than 1,260 years from the rise of the man of sin in the year 606. Footnote. This shall be shown in its place. End of footnote. And this consideration restricts the period of the third woe to the age in which we live. Number three, there is conclusive evidence found in the text itself that the period of the seventh trumpet is that which ushers in the millennium. Verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The church is thus represented as rejoicing. Great voices are heard in heaven. She has cause of joy. The occasion is novel indeed. Since the captivity of Judah, about 588 years before the Christian era, until the present day, scarcely an instance has occurred in the whole history of nations of a kingdom or commonwealth regulating their polity upon pure scriptural principles. Many nations, it is true, have pretended to be Christian, and religion has been scandalized by their unholy interference. Many Christians have also been deceived and misled into a belief that the kingdoms of the nations were so constituted as to merit their conscientious acquiescence and pious support. But the prince of the kings of the earth, who gave this revelation to his servant John, teaches us that now for the first time the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of God and of Christ. Heretofore they have been thrones of iniquity, having no fellowship with God, Psalm 94.20, characterized as beasts and horn of beasts, both by Daniel and the writer of the Apocalypse. Servants and admirers and apologists and eulogists they have had in abundance, but there was not a voice in heaven raised in their commendation. They were to be feared, but not approved by the saints of the Most High. Now, indeed, this last woe produces an effectual change. The powers of this world perish in his wrath. The kingdoms are become what they ought to be, and the voice of the church is raised in approbation of the salutary alteration. The seventh trumpet, so far as it respects its concluding judgments, synchronizes with the seventh vial. Third and last woe. Under the seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verse 15. And there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Under the seventh vial, chapter 16, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Under the seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verse 19. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Under the seventh vial, chapter 16, verse 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Also verse 21. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. It is by no means, however, upon the mere coincidence of expressions that we rest the assertion that the last trumpet is so far contemporary with the last vial, but upon the fact that each of these judgments is represented in its place as introducing the millennium. This is unquestionably the case with the last of the vials, as shall be shown in due time. 
and I have laid my reasons before you for affirming the same of the last trumpet. Respect for very valuable expositors, from whom I, in this interpretation, find cause of dissent, demands that I should take notice of their opinions before I proceed to the second branch of this discourse. These opinions are very numerous and various, but I do not propose to enter upon a discussion of them all. I am supported in the assertion of the coincidence of the seventh trumpet with the seventh vial by Lord Napier, Sir Isaac Newton, Mead, Brown, Whitaker, Johnston, and many other respectable expositors. These gentlemen differ, however, among themselves as to the period to which both the judgments apply, and by none of them have the principles which have determined my mind and which have I laid before you been ex exhibited to view. Durham, Lowman, Priestley, Reader, Fraser, Bishop Newton, and Mr. Faber, together with several others, have endeavored to prove that the seventh trumpet comprehends all the vials, and they too differ from one another as to the period of time to which the prophecy has respect. Mr. Lowman fixes the date of the seventh trumpet before the termination of the 8th century, and Mr. Faber places it at the commencement of the French Revolution toward the close of the 18th. The arguments which are employed to prove that the seventh trumpet comprehends all the seven vials are all capable of being reduced to the two following, the argument from analogy and that from parallel scriptural expressions. Number one, the argument from analogy. As there are three great distinct apocalyptical periods, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials, all marked by the symbolical number seven, and as the trumpets are all included in the seventh seal, it is inferred that the vials must be all included in the seventh trumpet. My reply to this argument is that the analogy fails, because as a sealed book must of necessity contain under the seventh seal whatsoever in the system of prophecy was not unfolded in the preceding, so the events of the trumpets being subsequent to those predicted under the first seal could not, if in the book at all, be made known until the seventh seal was removed from the part of the book which contained them. Therefore we are told expressly that when he opened the seventh seal, seven angels received the trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. But there is no necessity for placing any or all the vials under any one trumpet whatever. In the book, every event must be. But under the trumpets, there is no necessity for placing any event not expressly assigned to them. There is besides a straining, if not an abuse, of symbolical language in representing the cases as parallel. It is also to be observed that as the object of the seals was the pagan empire and that of the trumpets was the Christian empire, both in the west and the east, the trumpets could not in fact sound until after the sixth seal had abolished pagan power. But as the object of the vials is the Latin Roman Empire, in its state of apostasy, as this system of iniquity arose before the fifth and sixth vials had accomplished the downfall of the Eastern Empire, there is no necessity for waiting until that period for inflicting some of the judgments of heaven upon the anti-Christian system. Number two, the argument from certain scriptural expressions. There are to be found in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, compared with verse 7, 
Seven thunders uttered their voices. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. And in chapter 15, verse 1, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. It is alleged by Bishop Newton, and in this he is followed by Mr. Faber, that the seventh trumpet is the last woe, that the seven vials are the last plagues, and therefore must synchronize with the last two, that the seven thunders belong to the seventh trumpet and are synonymous with the seven vials, and therefore that the seven vials must come under the seventh trumpet. This, if I understand it, is the sum of the argument. With deference to the eminent expositors who rest their cause upon it, however, I cannot hesitate in saying that it is illogically constructed and altogether inconclusive. Number one, it is a gratuitous hypothesis that the seven thunders are the seven vials. Assuredly, there is no similitude between the symbols. Why should a clap of thunder be said without proof to be the same with a cup? Would it not be as reasonable to suppose that these seven thunders are those which were heard, chapter 16, verse 18, in consequence of the pouring out of the seventh vial, and are identified with the thunderings, chapter 11, verse 19, of the seventh trumpet? Second, in the seven vials is filled up the wrath of God, and I see no propriety in confining them all to the third woe. If the phase, phrase, filled up, signifies comprehended, it is impossible to affirm that the third woe exclusively contained divine wrath. Every woe, every trumpet, had its share, but if the phrase signifies completed, then it is no more limited in correct application to the last trumpet than to the last vial. The criticism which restricts its application to the last in one instance will restrict it to the last in the other. Third, there is no propriety in the remark that if the last plagues do not coincide with the last woe, then there are last and more last, etc., which is absurd. This is trifling with sacred things. It is sporting with the words of truth. Follow up with criticism and see how it will apply. There are seven last plagues inflicted in regular succession. Both Bishop Newton and Mr. Faber acknowledge this. There is therefore, according to the text, the first last plague, and the second last plague, and the third last plague, etc., etc. It is obvious to everyone that the words last, last plagues and is filled up with the wrath of God are not to be taken absolutely, but relatively. They cannot be true absolutely, because the judgments to which they apply are not, in fact, the last or the only judgments. There are subsequent judgments undoubtedly inflicted on Gog and Magog, and there are judgments inflicted subsequent to these and to all that can be inflicted in this world. There is a day of judgment when time itself is come to an end and there is wrath in hell. Mr. Faber ought therefore to have spared his criticism on Mr. Whitaker. It is unworthy of a grave expositor. Footnote, Volume 2, page 317, London, 1806. End of footnote. Great men are not always wise. The expressions in question are undoubtedly to be understood relatively, and they have relation to an the anti-Christian apostasy. 
The vials are the plagues inflicted upon this last form of the great fourth prophetical beast. In them is filled up the wrath of God toward the anti-Christian usurpation. The error of commentators upon this subject consists in their fondness to identify things which are intended in prophecy to be kept distinct. The objects of all the trumpets is one and is different from the object of the vials. And even although in some certain instances a trumpet and a vial should designate judgments upon one and the same system, it is on different accounts. The object of the trumpets is the Roman Empire, professing a political species of Christianity, and they affect this empire both in its Latin and Greek dominions. The object of all the vials is also one, the anti-Christian system in the Latin Roman Empire. It is true, the sixth and seventh vials, and the last trumpet meet, in judging and punishing the same great complex system of iniquity, preparatory to the millennium. But it is because those two distinct objects are in fact in this instance combined in the abominable and complex establishments which are divinely appointed to destruction. We shall hereafter show more at large that this destruction comes upon these establishments in the course of half a century from the present time. Footnote. We are now entered upon the period of the seventh trumpet. Mr. Faber appears very nearly correct in his chronological statement of this third and last woe. It, in fact, originated in the commotions of the French Revolution, and Napoleon Bonaparte is the principal agent of providence hitherto employed in this work of judgment. In this I entirely agree with that expositor, however far he has mistaken the time of the vials. It has been our lot, says he, in volume 2, page 313, to hear the voice of the third woe and to behold in the French Revolution the dreadful scenes of the harvest. Page 317. We have likewise seen that the third woe came quickly in the year 1792 when the reign of, the, of Gaelic liberty and equality commenced. That it, then it was that the voice of the seventh angel, or the third woe angel, began to be heard. Number two, we shall explain the predictions of the seventh trumpet. These predictions respect the grand design of the woe, the joy which the accomplishment of that design produces, and the means employed in bringing it to pass. First, the great end accomplished is the general reformation of the nations of the earth. Verse 15, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The existing sovereignties of nations constitute the subject of this prediction. The kingdoms of this world are the political constitutions which are on earth and which have derived their form and character from the men of the world, and particularly the several kingdoms which are found within the precincts of the old Roman Empire. The reformation which they undergo changes effectually their character. They become the kingdoms of our Lord. They were, heretofore, of this world, of the earth, earthy, but now they are of the Lord. They were always, in fact, though unknowingly and unwillingly, under the power of Jehovah and made subservient to Jesus Christ. But they are now professedly and with understanding subject to the law of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ. True religion now comes to be formally avowed by them in their political capacity. 
There were Christians residing in these nations before this time. The nations were actually called Christian nations. Some really supposed that they were Christian states. Many pretended that they were so. But during all this time, they have been, in the estimation of our Lord Jesus Christ, only kingdoms of this world. Now, however, they understand, they profess, and they support not a state religion, nor a worldly sanctuary, but the pure religion of the Bible in a consistent manner. The system of revealed truth for the first time influences their whole social relations and directs their polity, and they publicly proclaim their submission to Messiah. They are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. They acknowledge him as their governor, and he shall reign over them continually. Wonderful, and unto many, unexpected change. But the power of our Redeemer over the nations shall never afterwards be called in question by his disciples. He shall reign forever and ever. I conclude this part of my exposition in the words of Dr. Johnston. This trumpet which brings the last woe upon the Roman Empire, the inhabitants of the earth, brings praise and triumph to heaven, the Church of Christ. For there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Then Christians in the church of Christ shall lift up their voices aloud, and in triumph proclaim the purity, prosperity, and extent of Christ's spiritual kingdom, in such a manner that no part of the world shall be ignorant of the proclamation or willing and able to gainsay it. Then all the kingdoms which Daniel foretold should arise and fall in the world before the kingdom of Christ should extend over the whole world shall have fallen, and that kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which is not meat and drink, but truth and righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, shall extend over the whole earth. Then all the particular kingdoms and churches which shall be be erected in the world for the civil and religious government of men in society shall be formed on these principles of truth, righteousness, peace, and joy, which form the constitution of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. From that time forth, so long as this world stands, Christ's church shall reign in triumph. No kingdom shall again rise up to persecute and oppress it with success, as Rome, heathen and papal, had done before that period, and its purity and triumph shall be forever and ever in the heavenly world. Second, the seventh trumpet predicts great joy for the general reformation consequent upon the third woe. Verses 16 and 17. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. They who returned thanks in this solemn manner to the Almighty and so expressed their joy at the remarkable event now come to pass are the collective body of faithful men in the Church of Christ, the four and twenty elders. Footnote. This symbolical expression has been heretofore explained. End of footnote. These fell upon their faces before the throne of God and in humble acknowledgement of his sparing mercy to themselves as well as in grateful adoration of his justice in the punishment of his and their enemies, they worship him in spirit and in truth. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.
There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue.